You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church, and today we find ourselves in Acts 21, as uh, was just read. And we're going to see today uh, kind of a shift in the book of Acts. We're going to see Paul doing something a little bit different than he's been doing the past few weeks. Now, this passage, as I was reading it, actually reminded me of football season. We are in full swing here in the middle of football season, and some of you who are very obnoxious fans of your team still believe that your team has a chance to beat Tom Brady, which is not going to happen, so don't even, don't even try, right? But during football season, as you see on the screen already, uh, there is debate oftentimes of which team is the best team. And oftentimes it comes down to, can a great offense beat a great defense, or can a great defense beat a great offense? And as the famous Alabama head coach Bear Bryant said, defense is what wins championships. Now there has been some great teams in NFL history with some incredible defensive teams. You see a few on the screen here. We have the monsters of the midway, the 85 Bears. Anybody Bears fans here? All right, all right. We got the purple people eaters of the Vikings in the 70s. What a name, right? We have the steel curtain of the Steelers. Yeah, I know a few of you, right? And then most recently, we had the Legion of Boom and the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, we got a few Seattle fans in here. All right. Didn't expect that one. Uh, But in football, right, uh, defense and offense both matter. Now, let's think of something a little more serious in our world, and that is our government. One of the things about a government, one of the most important aspects and role of a government is to protect its citizens from national security threats. It means that we should have a strong defense both at home and abroad. That's the reason why, as the next picture shows the the Pentagon here, that our Department of Defense, which some of you may be tied to here in the audience, is the largest federal agency. And it is considered by many the largest employer on the planet. It's because a strong defense is important. It's needed. And in both football and both in terms of the defense of a government, both defense and offense are needed. And it's no different in the Christian life. That we need to both be offensively minded and at times defensively minded. And here in the book of Acts, we have seen Paul on the offense. We've been studying how he's gone from place to place to new places along the Mediterranean coast and along the Mediterranean area, and he is sharing on the front lines the gospel message with new people. And today in our passage, we're going to see in Acts 21, 17, a shift. Paul's going to go from playing primarily on offense to being on defense, and the rest of the book of Acts will unfold around these five defensive speeches that Paul will give, a defense of the gospel, a defense of his testimony of what he has come to do. Up until this point, Paul has gone to and fro, led by the Spirit, to basically wherever he's wanted to go. And in the process of doing that, he has started new churches. But here in Acts 21, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we'll see that Paul is going to be a prisoner. And as a prisoner, he will be giving a defense. Now, we'll notice today that Paul's defense is not characterized like a great defensive lineman would be characterized. He's not characterized by aggressiveness or attack. 
but he shows us what a gospel witness looks like in the face of adversity, in the face of hostility, in the face of the enemy. And really, our main point today of this text, if you're taking notes, is simply this. A gospel witness, a gospel defense, is characterized by humility and hope amid hostility. That Paul's going to teach us that even in the midst of hostility, even under fire, even in pain, even in an attack, a gospel witness should be characterized, the defense that we give should be characterized by humility and hope. And so our outline is going to follow right through the text today, right from the main idea. And we're going to break this text down into three scenes. We're going to see first, humility in the mission. As Paul goes to Jerusalem, the mission that he has there in verses 17 through 26 of chapter 21. Then we're going to see hostility from the mob. We're going to see how the, the mob in Jerusalem respond hostile to Paul in verses 26 through 36. And then we're going to see the hope that Paul has in the message in which he proclaims to the Jerusalem Christians and non-Christians in verses 37 of chapter 21 through 22 of chapter 22. And so as we get into the text today, let's just kind of recap where we are in the book of Acts. Maybe you're coming here for the first time. Welcome. Uh, Maybe you've been with us and tracking with us the last few weeks, but we find ourselves here in kind of the end of the book of Acts. And up until this point in Acts, particularly in the ministry of Paul, in in chapters 13 through 21, we've seen Paul on mission, right? He's been on offense. He's been traveling around on his missionary journeys. He's been starting new churches. He's seeing people come to faith in Christ. He's revisited some of those churches to establish them, and now he's heading to Rome. That's his end game. He wants to get to Rome, and by way of going to Rome, he first goes to Jerusalem. And as Ben uh, preached last week and taught us at the beginning of Acts chapter 21, there were several people along his route to Jerusalem who told him, hey, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, even as one Agabus prophesied, you're going to suffer. You're going to be in chains. And Paul knows this, and he goes, nonetheless. And we pick up here in Acts 21, verse 17, as Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. And listen to what the word says. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So this first scene really starts with this picture of happiness, of joy. Paul enters in Jerusalem and he's greeted by friends. And then those friends take him to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is the one who wrote uh, the New Testament letter, the book of James. He is also considered kind of the spokesperson of the church of Jerusalem. So he kind of speaks on behalf of the other elders, the other pastors there. And they're all gathered together. And what they're doing is they're sharing about Paul's ministry. And Paul is talking about what has accomplished, what has happened through his ministry among the Gentiles. And we really see the first aspect of Paul's humility here. As he comes into Jerusalem, the first thing that he does is not talk about himself, but he begins to rejoice in what God has done. And in humility, he rejoices recounting what God has done. Not about himself. He doesn't set up a table in the town squares of Jerusalem and does his book signing because he's the Apostle Paul. He doesn't promote his brand. He goes in simply to say, all glory to God for what he has done. Now, Paul's not irrelevant to the mission, but Paul understands that the story of his ministry is what God has done through him, not what he has accomplished in his own strength. And so he begins to relate these things one by one in detail. 
And I'm sure as he gathers the church together in Jerusalem, he begins to relate these things. These are similar things that we've probably studied in the book of Acts. Perhaps he recalls in relating God's grace what happened in Cyprus with Sergius Paulus. And perhaps he tells about what happened in Philippi with Lydia. Or tells him what happened in Ephesus with Christus becoming a Christian. He's talking about the evidences of God's grace in his life. And we see in the next sentence that the church in Jerusalem does the same. These Jewish Christians begin to express glory to God for what they have heard. And I love this because it shows us an example of unity in the church. You have Paul who is primarily ministered amongst the Gentiles, and you have the Jerusalem church which is primarily ministering amongst Jewish people who are becoming Christians. And we see Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, coming together and rejoicing for what God is doing through the church. There's no hint of competition. There's no hint of jealousy here. There's unity. Now, we might say that this is an understatement, right, Wesley? Of course, we rejoice and praise God for the things that he does in our lives. That's the right thing to do. That's how Paul leads here as he walks into Jerusalem. But oftentimes we find that that's actually not the most natural thing to do, right? I mean, how easy is it sometimes for us to hear what God is doing in the life of another, perhaps somewhere else, and not respond with humility and joy, but respond with pride, maybe even grudging. And let's take it out of the, reality, the realm of the church for a moment. Let's take it into our lives, into our careers, and ask ourselves, do we often rejoice in the lives of other Christians in our careers when they appear more successful than us? Do we rejoice when our colleagues get the promotion that we wanted? Do we rejoice when there is something else that is someone else receives that we also desire? You see, it's not natural for us to praise God for the evidences of God's grace in the life of another. It's something that happens through the supernatural work of God's Spirit. And here we see Paul, through the Spirit, displaying gratitude and humility, rejoicing in God's work. And the Jerusalem church is rejoicing in what God is doing in the lives of one another. Now, there's a problem, though, that occurs here. We see Paul's reputation it was suffering. And some Jewish Christians were suspicious of Paul, and so we continue in verse 20, and it says, They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So that's good news, right? That there's thousands and thousands of Jews in Jerusalem that are believing in Jesus Christ. And we know that the, the culmination of the Jewish faith of Judaism is the culmination of the Jewish... Is there a balloon over here? <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, man. All right, let's get back to the scriptures here. Rejoicing. Balloons are, are for rejoicing, right? That's the application. There are thousands upon thousands of Jews here, of Christians, uh, or Jews who are becoming Christians. And the culmination of the Jewish faith is in the Jewish Messiah. And so if we think about it rightly, it is in the culmination of seeing Jesus Christ for who he is, putting faith in Jesus Christ. And there are many who are connecting the dots here in Jerusalem, Jews who are believing in the Jesus, this is the Messiah. They're celebrating. This is a wonderful thing. But then it continues, and there's a problem here. He says, they are all zealous for the law. Now, when we read that term, the law, that can mean a multitude of things in the Bible, right? Uh, it, can, it can reference multiple aspects of the Old Testament. Now, primarily what it's not referencing here in this text today is God's moral law. In the sense that there are the commandments of God, think most famously the Ten Commandments, that teach us how to walk in the ways of God. When it says that they are zealous for the law, it's not referring to the moral law, it's referring to Jewish customs. In essence, here are these believers who are Christians, but they're also very Jewish, and they want to maintain their Jewishness. They want to maintain their heritage without compromising the gospel message. 
And so here we see a problem. James says, verse 21, and they have been told about you, Paul. (laughs) That's never a good way to start, right? Like, hey, there's been some things told about you. That never ends well, right? He says, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James says, hey, there's been some things told about you, Paul. There's some rumors going around about you, Paul, that as you go to these places amongst Gentiles, that you're actually telling Jewish people that they don't need to to, uh, uh, remember Moses. They don't need to circumcise their children. They don't need to walk in the ways of our customs. What, What do we do here? Right? What we see is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul, who's had this incredibly fruitful ministry among the Gentiles, both want the same thing. They want unity in the church. And so they come together and they ask the question, what can be done? How do we dispel these myths? How do we get rid of these rumors that are floating around in the Jerusalem church? Well, James says, I got a plan. And again, we notice Paul's humility here. He could have easily said, let the haters hate, right? Like, I don't, I don't care. That's not what he says. Paul willingly listens to the plan here. We see his love for people. We see his humility. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among, along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. This is recounting what happened in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem council. And and he's recounting this again. And in verse 26, he says, then Paul took them in and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. I love this. James says, I got a plan. Here's the plan, Paul. Go pay for some haircuts, right? (laughs) Like these guys are under a vow. They're under this thing called the Nazarite vow, which is basically a a vow expressing thankfulness to God. And and Paul says, I'm going to fulfill this request. He doesn't object to it. He doesn't say, no, I got a better plan. He follows through. He follows through to show that the Jewish converts, uh, that he is not objecting to Jewish customs as long as the gospel isn't compromised. He's being flexible here. He's showing us that cultural preference isn't the primary thing when it comes to God's mission. And we notice that Paul fulfills this. He gives notice of the seven days the brothers would appear in the temple to conclude this vow and make the offerings. Now, what's the application for us here? Well, the application is for us to follow in the footsteps of Paul here. That humility and sacrifice are how people see Jesus in us. It is when we lead with humility and sacrifice like the Apostle Paul that people will see Jesus in us. Paul is putting into practice what he taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, like these men, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in his blessings. Sometimes we may read this and we think, well, is Paul teaching us that we don't have to have conviction, right? Is Paul just saying that we can just fit in wherever we want to fit in? Uh, that we can just go with the flow. We can be liked by as many people as possible. We can kind of be a chameleon in society and just kind of shift and mold with whatever the winds of the culture is. That's not Paul's motivation at all. Paul's motivation for going under this vow is about the mission to win people to the faith. And therefore, he is willing to literally do anything except compromise the integrity of the message of Jesus in order to persuade people of the truth. He is flexible. He is willing to bend over backwards to share it with others for the sake of the gospel that they may share in its blessings. And when rumors and and slander come upon Paul, he could easily become overwhelmed at this moment. When these colleagues of his come and they say, hey, we have a solution, we have a plan, he could have easily stood up and defended himself and said, no, that's not right. I'm being falsely accused, but that's not what he does. Paul, in his humility, goes on mission. Why? For the sake of the gospel. See, I don't believe Paul went into this vow primarily to pacify the Jewish Christians uh, who, who were throwing around these rumors and suspicion about him. I think he primarily went into this vow for those who did not yet believe. Because Paul wanted to show them the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. He can mix it with the Jewish Christians. He can mix it up with the Gentiles. He never compromised the gospel message. He never participated in sin to do such a thing. But in Paul's humility, he would lay down his cultural preferences at the feet of Jesus for the sake of the gospel. And it should encourage us to do the same. That if we're going to have humility in the mission, we must primarily find our identity in Jesus Christ more than the cultural identity markers that we so identify ourselves with. That means that we find our identity more in Jesus than we do in our political party. More than our national identity. More than our racial identity. More than our educational background. More than our socioeconomic status. More than our entertainment preferences. We do this, why? Because if we're first and foremost those who are Christians, we realize that we have the same fundamental need as every human being who walks the planet. And we have the same great Savior who can redeem us. And because of that, Paul lays aside here his cultural preferences. He lays aside in humility to go on mission, to care first and foremost about the gospel message. Now when we get to scene number two here, we see the hostility that incurs from the mob It's a great shift here, right, from Paul's humility to hostility, from the spirit of Paul to the spirit of the mob. Read in verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, most likely uh, from from, uh, Ephesus, actually, uh, these Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. That's a hyperbole statement, right? (laughs) He's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, this was a lie. It was a bald-faced lie. Paul didn't bring Trophimus into the temple. He would know better than this. Uh, to, bring, to, to bring a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple would be execution. It would be the death penalty. But they're stirring up these accusations against Paul. It sounds a lot like what happened to Jesus, right? False accusation after false charge. And the result here is that hostility ensues. Now, just a side note here. This is what happens when we don't tell the truth, right? <laughs> when we don't stick to the truth. 
And if we're going to state what someone has done, we don't need to state what we suppose they have done, right? If we're going to state what someone believes, we shouldn't state what we suppose they believe, like they're doing here to Paul. And if we would just stick to the facts, we would probably limit the amount of false accusations that Paul is dealing with here as he is enduring. But it gets worse. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, that escalated quickly, right? Words came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So Paul's really walking in the steps of Jesus Christ here. The one who, as it was prophesied, came to his own and they did not receive him. Here Paul's going back to, to really his hometown in a sense, and they're not receiving him, and they're trying to kill him. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out away with him. These people wanted to kill him. The Romans get involved. His commander comes. They arrest him. And they order him to be bound with these two chains, which is, again, exactly what Agabus last week prophesied would happen, right? He would be bound with chains. And here it is coming to fulfillment. And the Roman commander, he steps in, and he doesn't know Paul. He's trying to figure out who Paul is and what he has done, and the crowd is so confused. They're shouting one thing. They're shouting another. There's no actual facts being said, and so they throw him in the barracks, probably for his own safety. This is an ugly scene, and it may lead us to think, well, did James' plan backfire, right? I mean, James had this plan of, hey, Paul, if you, if you go about this plan, then, then perhaps it will, it will kind of lessen the, the, the heightened tension that's happening here, the suspicion that's happening amongst Jewish Christians. If you go through this plan, then, then maybe things will go smoothly. Uh, did, did the plan backfire because now the, the mob is in an uproar and Paul's literally almost dead? No, I don't think so at all. You see, this is exactly what happened even with our Lord Jesus Christ, right? According to God's plan and his will, he was crucified by the hands of lawless men. And here we see this ugly scene of Paul uh, being beaten, but Paul never, never expected to have a pain-free experience in Jerusalem. Right? He knew affliction awaited him. And sometimes we look at this and we say, well, the immediate outcome of his actions looked like a failure, but that's not the full story. See, Paul's actions here uh, would eventually not only put to bed some of the suspicion of the Jewish Christians, but more so than that, God was sovereignly using every single step of these actions to get him to Rome. Which reminds us of something very beautiful today. That God doesn't overlook the sinfulness of this world. He doesn't overlook the actions of the mob here. But he knows exactly what is happening because he's the one in control of human history. And because of that, we can trust him. Paul was doing the right thing. He was doing it out of his love for unity for the church and out of his love to see the gospel go forth. And as a result, he is beaten. As a result, he is chained. But the story is not over because Jesus is Lord of his church and Jesus is Lord of history. And what application point can we take from this? I think simply this. We too expect and should expect that there will at times come hostility 
and even false accusations for living for Jesus. There will at times, just like the Apostle Paul is enduring here, times where we should expect hostility and false accusations for living for Jesus. Our equip uh, training program that we do for, for uh, those who are aspiring for, for pastoral ministry or, or missionary training, we're reading a book, or we just finished a book uh, called Honest Evangelism. And the author, I love how blunt he is up front about the book. He says this in the very beginning of the book. He says, I want to be honest. If you tell non-Christians about Jesus, it will be painful. Why? Because living for Jesus, speaking the name of Jesus, will cause at times misunderstanding to happen. Will at times cause, just like Paul here, false accusations to be made. And will at times, just like Paul, is experiencing pain. But you're not alone. We stand in the long line of church history in which Christians have been falsely accused and suffered for the name of Jesus. Christians have been accused of incest, cannibalism, atheism. Uh, they've been accused of being bigots and intolerance. The list goes on and on. Well, remember Jesus Christ himself, the only truly innocent one who was falsely accused, nailed to a cross for our sins, for the ones who accused him. But not only do we stand in the line of church history to encourage us today, but Jesus himself stands with us. See, Paul wasn't alone as he was going through this. Jesus was right there with him. Amidst the hostility, he was ready to grant grace in Paul's time of need. And the same is true of us. When we face opposition, when we face false accusations, when we feel isolated for standing for what is right, be reminded today that Jesus is with you, that he is standing for you, he is in control, and that he always gets the last word. Paul knew this and empowered him to then go and speak the hope of his message, which is scene three here. Now, as Paul has been beaten near to death, we pick up in verse 37, and it says, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia. A citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul, he's beaten, he's, he's almost dead at any moment. The, 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 the mob could break through, and what does he do? He turns to the commander, and he speaks to him in kind of this formal, courteous Greek. And it shocks the commander. <laughs> he wasn't expecting that from Paul. He had totally got Paul's identity wrong, right? I mean, this is like, you know, like, he's way off here, <laughs> Uh, this is, you know, he's been like catfish or something. Like, he's so off on Paul's identity here. He says, wait, aren't you that foreign troublemaker? Like, aren't you the guy who led the assassins of the wilderness? And Paul's like, dude, you're way off. Like, I'm from Tarsus. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a Greek. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Greek as well and a Jew, and I'm from Tarsus. I'm from Sicilia. I'm from this culture place, this education place. I got papers. I got university degrees. And this commander changes his tone, and he's like, oh, okay, well, this is different. Yeah, <laughs> this is not who I expected this to be. And so what does Paul ask him? He says in verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul asked him to speak. He says, and when he gave him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I am now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
That's what happens. Paul turns to the crowd and he begins to speak. But he switches language here. He's no longer speaking Greek. The text says he speaks the Hebrew language. Now, some of your uh, Bibles may have a footnote there that it was most likely Aramaic that he was speaking here. Because as you think about the, the Jewish history, and you go back to the Old Testament, and through the, the Babylonian exile and the dispersion of Jews, uh, many Jews from that moment, as they were dispersed along the land, they didn't actually study Hebrew as much as their native tongue. But when they gathered together in Jerusalem, and they would come back for the festivals and, and the, 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 the big gathering moments in Jerusalem, the common language that was spoken was Aramaic. And so Paul brilliantly speaks their common language. He immediately addresses them in a way that they would understand. And what does it do? It captivates everyone's attention. The crowd, which was once violent, hush. Silence, captivated by Paul now. And then he continues to speak. And he says here, basically sharing his testimony, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, which this way is commonly what uh, early uh, Jews would actually refer to the Christian faith, this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's recounting what we experienced in Acts chapter 9. Paul is his persecutor at the time, Saul the persecutor. He is persecuting Christians, and he's going as far as Damascus to do such a thing. And then listen to what it says. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So this is Paul recounting his conversion story. As he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him, and he experiences the glory of the resurrected Jesus. And then in verse 12 it says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And in verse 17, he says, And when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, 
Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And we see in this culmination of this story, right after this, it it seems as if they, they kind of are glued in, right? Up into the moment in which he is speaking of uh, what he has done and, and what God has done in his life, they're glued in. And then he starts mentioning going to the Gentiles. And what happens? The mob turns again, and they want to kill him. Now, what can we learn from Paul's testimony here? Because what Paul's doing is he's giving an, a factual account of his defense, of who he is and what God has done in his life. What are some things that we can learn from Paul's testimony? Well, I think the first thing we can learn is how calm Paul is in delivering this. He's cool, Right? Paul doesn't respond with anger, with attack. I mean, this is an intense moment. He's been beaten. He's been falsely accused. Nothing is right about this. But Paul doesn't respond with anger or attack. He responds with gentleness and compassion and meekness. He reasons with these whom are attacking him with love. And likewise, when we are in a pressure-filled situation perhaps a pressure-filled conversation with someone, we should ask the Father to calm us, right? To remind us that we can have grace to speak the message with gentleness and respect. And Paul is doing just that. And the second thing we learn is from Paul's courage here. You see, in the face of this opposition, he's not only calm, but he's incredibly courageous. He doesn't back down. He stands his ground. And sometimes it's easy for us, perhaps in a pressure-filled situation, to remain calm. Sometimes maybe it's a little harder to stand for the truth. And here Paul's doing both. When pressed for honesty, he delivers. He says exactly what the truth is. He speaks both truth and love in this message. And as a church, we do that as well. We love people well, but we stand firmly on the truth. And that is what we offer to a broken world. The truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And courageously, Paul breaks into his story here with the message of the gospel. And maybe we missed it. I just want to dig a little deeper there. In verse 16, he says, And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now, we read that and we think, okay, we understand like baptism and, and the Christian faith. Baptism is this representation, it's this water representation of what has happened to us in Jesus Christ, right? This cleansing of our sins, that the blood of Jesus Christ atones for our sins, it washes us clean, and the water represents what happens when we believe in Jesus. But the Jewish people actually had a category for baptism as well. And when someone who was of a Gentile background wanted to convert into believing the God of Israel, they would be baptized. Why? Because they would need to be cleansed. Why do they need to be cleansed? Because they're unholy. Because they're unrighteous. Because they're unclean. You see, what Paul's doing here is actually pretty, pretty incredible. He is just up until this point, from verse 3 to 16, he's expounded upon his own Jewishness. He's talked about who he is and what he has come from. That he was a Pharisee, that he was a Jew among Jews. And yet he says, guess what I needed? I needed baptism. I needed the forgiveness of my sins. In essence, what he's telling them is whether you're a Jew or a Greek, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you obey God's law. We're all unclean. We're all just as lost as the brother and sister sitting right next to us, apart from God. 
The idea of a Jewish Pharisee making this statement would be so shocking and astonishing. And yet Paul courageously leans into the gospel message. He says, here is the gospel. We are all lost without him. But here is the good news. Believe in his name. And when you call upon his name, you believe in his name, you are completely loved. You are completely forgiven. And you are completely accepted by our God. And then finally, we see the hope that Paul has in his testimony. It wasn't defiance that allowed Paul to stand up amidst the hostility. It wasn't that he mustered up his own strength and his own credentials to speak so boldly and honestly. What empowered his defense was the resurrected Jesus. See, Paul says when he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him, he says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus answers, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. In essence, Paul, for the first time, experiences the resurrected Jesus. And in that moment, he realizes that if Jesus is truly resurrected from the dead, then his death made sense. And everything changed from that moment on. And if his death made sense, then the future makes sense. You see, this is an incredibly hopeful message here, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe that he really died on the cross for our punishment and is now raised from the dead, and that we can put our faith in him, if we believe that, not only, like Paul says here, can we receive forgiveness of our sins, but we have an incredible hope for the future. We have incredible hope that we too will be raised one day, that everything in this world will be made right, that there's not going to be any more suffering or death or hostility from the mobs. This is the astonishing hope that was empowering his defense, the type of hope that can free us from the fear of death itself. As one poet, George Herbert, wrote, I love this line. He says, death used to be an executioner to me, but the gospel has made it just a gardener. When we have this type of hope, then we can look to Jesus amidst the hostility. We can trust in him amidst the adversity. And we can find joy in life, living in humility. And that's what Paul's modeling for us here. As he gets up and he gives his defense here, as he shares his testimony, he comes in humility and he leads with hope. The hope of the resurrected Jesus that allows him to courageously and calmly stand before the mob and share that there is forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. As we come to our time of conclusion and we prepare ourselves for the, the Lord's Supper, I just want to read from Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition, and we will not lose heart. So this morning, as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we think about this message today, We follow our Savior, Jesus Christ, who didn't look at himself, but looked for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy that was set before him? was the cross. And what would he accomplish on the cross for us? Not only on the cross would he please his Father's will, but he would redeem his friends, you and me. Do you want the hope that Paul has? Do you want the peace that he understood amidst the chaos? Do you want life? Today we look to Jesus. He is our hope. He is the one who's worth living for even in the midst of the chaos of this world. He is our one defense.
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.